Good morning, ladies and gents. It is Thursday, March 3rd, 2022. Uh, this is the intraday version of Blue's Views. Uh, once again, fairly light on the research front today. Uh, my whole uh, my whole comment the other day about uh, the banks, the big banks and firms and brokerages kind of hunkering down and, and waiting for the Russia-Ukraine thing to pass uh, before saying anything new. I kind of said that in jest, <laughs> but uh, it seems to be the case. Uh, no one is really saying anything new or even coming out and reiterating a big call that they've had, um, except for Marco Kalanovic, of course, who continues to come out and copy and paste the same thing he's been saying for the last eight weeks. But that's apparently what Marco does. Anyway, there were two notes that did stick out a little bit today. I'll go through them real quick. Um, Barclays had a piece on hedge fund positioning, um, which they refer to hedge fund, current hedge funds positioning as subdued. Um, there's been a material amount of degrossing. Uh, their exposure to equities is well below normal. Uh, let's see what else here. Um, you know, they do, they point out that the fact that the price of downside protection in the market uh, has been elevated for a while now. Skew isn't as elevated as it was, but the downside protection in general has remained uh, much more expensive than you know, right tail or upside protection. So they point out the fact that because it's been expensive to hedge big long positions, uh, the market uh, decline has actually been much more orderly than it might have been otherwise. Um, so a good point there that they make. And, and that's something that we as traders are encountering too, right? I mean, given everything that's been going on out there, Given the material move in real rates, uh, the stuff with Russia and Ukraine, with inflation, with you know, with the Fed being trapped, it does kind of feel like stocks should have moved quite a bit lower than they have already. And I think one of the reasons that they haven't is because the market, for really for six or six to eight months now, a lot of participants have been expecting a, if not a crash, you know, a, a material twenty to thirty percent correction. So the market doesn't crash when everyone is looking for a crash, right? It tends to happen when people are euphoric, uh, when the the the, uh, the price of downside protection is very very low. Um, so I think that's one dynamic that we've been seeing here over the last six or seven weeks uh, that has kept things orderly to the downside for the most part. We've had one or two days there where things started to get a little panicky, but you know we we didn't even have a single limit down night. And given what's going on out there uh, in the world, it is a bit strange to me that we haven't seen a single limit down future session. Anyway, moving on. Uh, back to the Barclays note, uh, they see no capitulation of any kind yet. Uh, they, they say that Tina is still alive and well. I like to say that Tina is still drunk and high. <laughs> um, and, and listen, I mean, they're, even though treasury yields have backed off quite a bit and are presenting a bit more value than they have for some time, they're still ridiculously overpriced. I mean, you've got the 10-year at one, where is it now? Let's see. 185, 10-year break-evens are at like 250, 260. So just by that measure alone, 10 years are underpriced by about 80 basis points, right? <clears throat> so even though treasury yields um, have come, you know, have moved higher, um, they've attracted some more foreign inflows than, I know for a while now, we've talked about the fact that um, foreign inflows were being directly mostly to two mega cap tech stocks versus treasuries. Treasuries are starting to attract more of those flows again now, but there still really is no attractive, super attractive alternative to stocks. And of course, that's the way the Fed designed it. That's the way they want it. Um, last point from the Barclays note, um, they note that the post-March 2020 rally, so the post, uh, the initial panic on the COVID there, the post-March 2020 rally was helped a lot 
um, by low mutual fund and retail exposure. So basically that we went into that panic with mutual funds and retail having relatively low exposure to equities. And of course that changed in a hurry. Uh, and now we have the opposite problem. We have mutual funds uh, and, and retail uh, are overexposed to equities. So there are some key differences this time around. Now, the, the fact that hedge fund, you know, hedge fund uh, leverage has been low relative to where it was last year, but it's still quite elevated relative to history. It's probably never going to get back to where it was in the late 90s, back when you had all these momentum funds in Southern California. I noted in one of my tweets today that, uh, I, I mean, I lived in San Diego for most of the last seven years. And um, there's still empty corporate office space out there from, I mean, there used to be a ton of momentum funds in San Diego and they all blew up in 2000, 2001. There's still some empty office space from those funds out there. So yes, we're probably never going to get back. Let's hope we never get back to that leverage level that we were in the late nineties uh, when just everybody was making money hands over fist, but they were doing it with massive amounts of leverage. But bottom line, yes, we've seen a pullback in leverage, but it is still relatively elevated um, when you look back over the last, say, like five to seven years. Okay. Uh, a much more tactical note from Goldman Sachs today. I tweeted out about this uh, a little earlier. Uh, they're pointing out uh, that they're making the case for dividend stocks, high dividend stocks, which actually is, it was a very, um, th these are the kinds of pieces that I like really seeing. You know, mo in these periods of, um, you know, let's just say, you know, high VIX, high stress, right? High volatility. I've noticed that the banks tend to avoid trying to say anything controversial. And that's fine, but they really should be coming out with nice tactical pieces like this. At least that's how I see it. Um, so Goldman Sachs did just that. They point out to the fact that um, <clears throat> the uh, they're sort of, first of all, they're elevating their uh, dividend forecast for 2022 to $67. That's for the S&P 500. So that's a 10% annual growth this year versus 8% last year. So they're all bold up on S&P dividends. And you know you can own S&P dividend futures as opposed to just straight up S&P futures. And in fact, that's something that they recommend doing here. Uh, to be honest, I'm not even sure how one accesses those. I've never bought them before, but I can look into that and let everybody know. Anyway, um, okay. What they say in here. They note that uh, high dividend stocks tend to outperform um, non-dividend paying shares during periods of high inflation, which is kind of interesting because usually, you know, you think high inflation, what do you think? You think higher bond yields, you think higher bond yields, you think lower present values of future cash flows. So it's a little bit counterintuitive there that uh, dividend, high dividend paying stocks. But you know, I think what it shows though is it shows that you know, in, in tougher times, people were like, give me the cash. I'll take the cash. I'll take the dividends. These companies are paying. Let's, let's hide in these kind of a thing. Now, the one point that they make here that I have a little bit, uh, I have a harder time agreeing with, they're looking at earnings growth being the primary driver of dividend increases this year. And to me, that seems a little Pollyanna-ish. You know, earnings estimates, in my view, for 2022 and 2023, remain at risk to downside revisions. So if they're looking for earnings to drive the dividend growth here, I'm not 100% sure I can be on board with that. Now, that being said, corporate margins are so high, okay? And, and a lot of that comes from, you know, we had, as Powell talked about yesterday, we've had zero goods inflation for such a long period of time. You know, real wages are, are if real wage growth is even positive for the last 14 years, I'd be surprised, okay? So some of these, massive improvements in margins over the last decade plus have been driven by things that are not sustainable. 
Now, that being said, could these companies choose to give up a little bit of margin in order to generate higher dividends? Yes, they have room there. They've got some room in their profit margins to play with a little bit. To me, that's the fungible area that they have. I don't, I'm not sure that a lot of them are going to be able to count on really strong earnings growth this year and even next year. We'll have to see. As I've said many times, I'm not a you know, recession monger. I think that there are some nice tailwinds in the economy. I think it's going to be kind of a bumpy year for sure, uh, but I'm not looking for some massive collapse in the economy or anything like that. I just think it's a little Pollyanna-ish to be looking for strong earnings growth this year. So that's the one place where I'm going to uh, disagree with them. Uh, just turning to markets right now, where we are, um, we obviously had that big rally yesterday. We've had a nice few days uh, in the indexes. Um, it's when you when I look at the market technically, you know, I share the S and P and the and the Nasdaq chart every day. We're really smack in the middle of no man's land, both on the S and P and on the Nasdaq. We're still well inside those those yellow uh, triangles, those triangles of theta, as I've been calling them. Uh, because they're where options positions go to die. Uh, we're still well inside those triangles. And I don't see any reason to expect us to move materially higher or lower here before the Fed meeting. Remember, the Fed meeting is now less than two weeks away. Um, so I would imagine that we are just going to, in fact, I'm looking at this chart of the NASDAQ right now. I may even throw on some iron condors here. And it's looking like a pretty nice spot to do that potentially. Uh, we've had um, and for, the VIX is still above 30. Anytime the VIX is above 30, that's a good time to be buying iron condors, which means you're selling volatility. So my, you know, barring a big break one way or another in the Russia-Ukraine situation, which it just looks like it's just dragging on right now. I mean, I know they're trying to have talks and make progress, but as I've said in the last few podcasts that I've done, the smart geopolitics guys that I've talked to, they all universally expect this whole thing to be over by the end of March at the latest, um, and that you expect it to be moving more towards the background of the headlines. <clears throat> um, whether that's true or not, I don't know. Obviously, no one in the West really seems to know what Putin wants. Um, I think Putin probably is a little bit ticked off right now. He's had more problems than anticipated. Uh, conquering Kiev and other surrounding areas. Um, some are worried that he's getting testy and trigger happy. Who knows? All I know is that based on the knowledgeable people that I've talked to, this is something that we probably shouldn't worry about too much beyond the next few weeks. Um, it would be nice and tidy <laughs> if the whole situation started to approach a resolution before the Fed meeting so we can focus just on monetary policy and inflation. I doubt it'll be that neat and nice, but we'll see. But uh, for yeah, yeah, for, for now, I think we have to expect more sideways chop within these ranges that I've defined on my charts. Uh, don't chase in either direction remains, I think, a very good mantra to have. And uh, we'll go from there. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.